what kind of unbeaten streak are the Avalanche on? The Maple Leafs tried it, and the Islanders tried it, and the Winnipeg Jets tried it. Killing spree. Columbus Blue Jackets tried it. Mega kill. And the Minnesota Wild tried it. Dominating. And the Dallas Stars tried it. Unstoppable. And the Anaheim Ducks tried it. Wicked sick. And the San Jose Sharks tried it. Monster kill. And the New York Rangers tried it. Godlike Onage. Sackick fakes it. Takes it. Scores! Joe Sackick! Wow! Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm Steph, and you're locked into Burgundy Radio for January 22nd, 2018. Coming up on the show, the Avalanche make it 9, despite who's still in the infirmary, and we'll dig a little deeper into the scoring than just Nathan McKinnon, but before the whoosh, a quick hello from each of your disembodied voices of the week. Joining us as usual is Earl. Hello, Earl. Hello, sports fans. And also joining us as usual is Jackie. Hey to you, Tiger Vixen. Hello from Winter Wonderland. Winter Wonderland. Oh yeah, it snowed in the And also a hello to the voice of Vlad. How are you, sir? It is cold, and I love it. As you heard from the announcer, the Avs are on a streak, and it is up to nine. On Monday afternoon, Avs win 3-1 over the Anaheim Ducks with goals scored by Matt Nieto, Nathan McKinnon, and Colin Wilson on a power play. Jonathan Bernier chips in 30 saves, and boy, is he on a run of his own. In tight, he looks stellar. Then on Thursday, Avs win 5-3 over the San Jose Sharks. McKinnon scores two as part of a three-point night with support from Carl Soderberg and Miko Rantanen, who had three points of his own. Then Nieto adds the dagger versus his old team. San Jose had about a million power plays in this one, but the Avalanche penalty kill was perfect, asterisk. Bernier stopping all 25 shots he faced. Uh, The Sharks did get one about half a second after a power play expired. Finally, on Saturday afternoon, Colorado dismantled the New York Rangers by a score of 3-1, but this was a dominating performance. McKinnon and Rantanen both score, as does Eric Johnson, and there's really just not much else to say about this one. Colorado just looked to outclass a pretty banged-up Rangers side, and that's that. Nine in a row to close out the homestand, and the Avalanche look east. And that doesn't sound like the end of that read, but that's the end of that read. So, so <laughs> say words. <laughs> Well, I don't know what you can say besides it was a really good week. We're um, going streaking. Yeah. I, you know, last week when we were making our predictions, I, I thought that, the, you know, I thought they would take all three, but the Sharks game worried me the most, and it turned out that was the toughest one because they were the, the team that was able to come back finally. And just our luck, they didn't make it all the way back. But... um. You know, McKinnon was fabulous. Bernier was fabulous. Um, you know, you can't give a good reason why the Avs are going to lose a game anytime soon. I mean, they will, but they've really kind of morphed into something different than they were about a month ago. I keep going back and forth on if it's a good thing that they haven't trailed at all during the streak or not, because they will have to win different types of games. They will have to win a game that they're going to give up the first goal or trail in but then always getting the first goal and not giving up the lead that's impressive too so I kind of go back and forth on on what what exactly that means I'm going to go in and look um, 
to see where they rank within the league based on scoring first or trailing first. Um, they are second. They have 22 wins when they score first. Second only to the Predators, who have 23. Um, and losses when scoring first, they are in the middle of the bottom, just four. So their wins on the opponent score first, that's less good. They also have four of those. So if, if the other team scores first, Colorado have a winning percentage of 2-3-5, which is 26th in the NHL. So score first, probably win the game. Don't score first, probably lose the game. So that's a good point that you bring up there, that they really do need to show that they can win other kinds of games. When looking at stuff like that, do we consider kind of the evolution of the team? Because I think we all don't feel like this is just a hot streak, but yet there are some fortunate things that are happening to them. But do you take out kind of like the October? Like, do you look at all the stats all put together no matter what? Or do you think about kind of how they've evolved since the beginning of the season? Well, the roster has undergone a lot of changes from October to now, even with the trade of Duchesne. And now we have the injuries to Andrew Ghetto and Barry and Varley's not playing, even though he's not an active skater, if you will. I think there's a lot of variables that I don't know how we would be able to track something like that. It's uh, yeah, it's... tricky. Like you, I mean, you could compare uh, like month to month, but you can't really compare where they stand within the league without including all the data. Yeah, right. Of course. I, you know, the 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 never trailing thing is a concern, I guess, just because you know, in the miracle season with Wa, that was kind of their hallmark as well as scoring first and scoring a bunch early, and then turtling for the rest of the game. Um, and there have been a couple of turtles this week. Um, they're they're not really the same kind of turtles. It's not five man PK for the last half hour or anything like that. Um, you know, they're just withstanding a, a team that's desperate to score late in the game, kind of thing. And, and you know, the shot metrics kind of go haywire. Um, but I, I think you're right. It's going to be interesting to see if you know if they get down by a goal or even two, whether you know whether whether they can make it a game after that. And even though these teams have all been trying to come back on the Avs, their possession numbers have been pretty good, I'd say, even through maybe early December after they kind of stopped their losing streak. So they've, they've been pretty good with the possession, which I guess is a good positive sign for moving forward is they've kind of figured that out better in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when they have bad possession numbers, it's generally their shooting tails off. I think what they do defensively is generally pretty consistent as far as um, Corsi against. Um, so I, I, I think it's sort of the mentality has been that they're shooting more lately, and that's been sort of the driver of, of why their possession numbers have been better. So... You know, as long as they keep that mentality of, of getting the puck out, getting the puck up ice, and taking shots when they're in the offensive zone, I, I, I don't see that tailing off. But again, you know, with not having trailed in almost a month, you've got to wonder, <laughs> you know, what, what's the mentality going to be when they're, you know, when a team's really clogging and they're, you know, they're down by two? 
much more difficult to, to do those things. It's much more difficult to enter the zone and everything like that. So, um, you know, we'll see. I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of worry about it just because they, they've been in some difficult situations during this streak that it doesn't really seem like it just because they've uh, been so dominant. But um, I just think the confidence that they've gotten from playing this well for so long can carry over to things that they didn't have to do during the streak. Yeah, like how I think you mentioned in your breaking down article that they even went on a what was it fifteen to nothing run in the third period yesterday? Yeah, if I'm remembering that right, and that's yeah. I think that's a pretty um, pretty significant thing that they can be proud of because it was a one goal game, that, so the Rangers were needing to push in that third period, and they actually played in the offensive zone. They actually played aggressive. And then you could even tell by the usage, then after they got past maybe the 10-minute mark, then they started kind of like pulling back, being a little bit more conservative, and then that's when the Rangers finally kind of put a push together. But it was good to see that they could do that in the third period. Yeah, it was even more impressive because sort of at the end of the second, the Rangers started pressing, and that carried it through to sort of the beginning of the third and I was like, oh, no, we're just, we're, you know, because, you know, they, they did turtle against both Anaheim and San Jose. I was like, this, this third game in a row, they're going to have a big old turtle. And just suddenly they started blasting. And, you know, that's when they kind of, they put together the, the frat line again. Uh, they put together Jost and Comfer and Kerfoot together and made that a line and that, I, I think that was sort of a, a sneaky good aspect of why they went on that big run. And, um, and I also noticed they played Gerard a lot in the beginning of that period. Yeah, they, you know, they, they didn't sort of buckle in and, and put out the, the defensive defenseman and just try to withstand it, you know, and, and, and Bednar said many times that he's not into that, you know, it's like if, even if that does happen, it's not with his blessing. So, you know, I, I do think he looks for, for ways to avoid that if at all possible. And I, I think that was a good counter because they, you know, they, they kind of took the fourth line out of play. Toninata didn't even play in the fourth and Yakupov got one shift. And I think that was when Jost uh, sort of had a, he missed a shift with an injury. <clears throat> so, you know, they went with three lines and they were all really effective. So, you know, they just did what it took to, keep the the pressure in the offensive zone the whole third period until the very end and to that end they kept the clock running there were very minimal stoppages in play and i noticed this in the second period in the third period this game ended early they for whatever reason and however it worked they just kept that clock going the, the refs were a huge help yesterday they only called two penalties and they could have called a lot more um, but they were, uh, for some reason, it, it just went with the flow of the game. It just, both teams were ready to run and, and have a nice track meet. And I, I really enjoy that much more than having constant stoppages. I think anyone does. Yeah, I mean, the Avs could have more power plays, but then the Rangers would have had a few more too. And then, yeah, then we would have had a penalty fest. So, might yeah, as well it's sort just of like NASCAR where cautions beget caution, <laughs> so you don't yeah. want to see that. Um, 
you know, I, I just, I, I really enjoyed the flow of that game just because it was just, it was back and forth and all over the place the whole time, but you just, you weren't focusing on, you know, like offsides and icings and all kinds of stuff like that. It kind of reminded me of the Islanders game. Like the Islanders like to play wide open and it's, it's more of a style of the East, but it was like before they realized that it was a bad idea to play wide open against the Avs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder, yeah, I wonder how many teams are going to figure that out because it's like, Oh yeah, we can play our offense. Wait, maybe not a good idea. Yeah, I mean it's it's really tough. Like if you're thinking about if you're thinking about ways to sort of you know combat the speed because I think that's basically what most teams are seeing as the danger from the Avs is the speed. You know you can try to go low event, and that's what that's kind of what that's Dallas's full time philosophy now with Hitchcock, and that didn't work for them very well. And then, you know, a team like the Rangers or the Islanders that likes to play wide open. And I think we saw this with the Flyers earlier, too. Um, The Avs are more than willing to play that game as well. So if they're willing to adapt to these different styles of play, I know we discussed about being able to work on playing uh, without a lead. Being able to uh, be in those different types of game environments, would being able to play from behind, is that really as big of a concern as we think it might be? I think it really depends on how, how, how able they are to dictate the pace of play. And that's something that, even during the streak, I'm wondering, you know, how much... I know they have, but I'm just wondering how much of this is being able to dictate play versus they were sort of reactive for most of the fall. You know, they sort of, you know, a team would come in, they would dictate sort of what style the game was, and the Avs are like, okay, fine, you know, this is what we'll do. Uh, whereas I think over the streak, they've started to say, like, you know, this is how we want to play, and you're going to have to react to us. Um, and that's just it, you know, whether they can do that on a road, on the road is a big question. Even if they can't, I think it's a good step because I think you can put your finger on it and say, this is their identity. Now the next step is to do it all the time and do it against a lot of different teams. But I think even just finding that I think is good. And we've talked before about the ones that they have the most trouble with are the structured teams. So when they play those teams again, like I think, I think Carolina fairly soon. It might, maybe yeah. it might not be in until the end of February. I think it's part of one of their road trips. But anyway, that could be a good test for them. Um, Vegas will be, but that that's not till late March. Um, teams like that, if if they can play their style against those teams, then I think that's a a pretty big step forward for them. Yeah, if you can take apart some team that doesn't that, that plays a very structured style, I mean that that's that's sort of when you know that you're dictating on a nightly basis. Right, and and we may not see that until March. So <laughs> this this team is going to be a question mark until the end of the season. Um, you've you've oh, probably definitely. heard a lot of key presses in the background of this conversation, and that's been me trying to answer the question of how much this team has evolved over the season. Um, and I found something pretty interesting. For the first 16 games of the year, Colorado had two out of those 16. 
where they had a score-adjusted possession figure that was north of 50%. Two of 16, where they controlled the puck. Wow, yeah. And of the yeah. 14 where they didn't, they had eight where their number was 45 or less percent, um, which is pretty bad. And so do you know which game was game 16, by chance? Second Ottawa game. Second Ottawa game. They come home from Sweden, and the team could not be more different. Um, in the, oh God, how many games is that? 28? Yeah, in the 28 games since then, I think it is, they have been north of 50. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 times. So that's a marked difference. And, like, when, when they have been on the wrong side of it, they have only, you know, crossed that minus 5% mark a couple of times. It's really been, um, just consistently either at or above, you know, 50% on the possession numbers. And I'm going to include this graph um, with the podcast post on burgundyrainbow.com so that y'all can see what I'm looking at here, because it really is just striking how, um, how, how sudden that change was. For that 10 game span where the Colorado Avalanche were playing like twice a week and then having four days off it every week or two, they were bad. And it, yeah. after, after they came home from Sweden, it's just been a huge, huge difference. I'm going to throw it, a screenshot it, of this into the chat for y'all. Am I crazy to say that maybe Gerard has helped that? I mean, I don't want to say it's all him because there were some games there he didn't play a ton or whatever, but you're looking for like a huge difference in why their possession would be better. I mean, the guy helps possession. And I think it's helped the others defensemen as well. Like I think just moving it in the right direction, being able to break the puck out, being able to to do those little things, I think helps everyone. I think the and the added bonus with having Gerard in the lineup is that you don't have both of like Lindholm and Bigra or Lindholm and Miranoff um, in the lineup at the same time, <clears throat> and I think yeah. that helps a lot. You know, I think that was just that you know because th- that wasn't like we traded a defenseman for Sam. It's just you know we we traded Dutch and we lost Dutch from the offensive core, but. You know, that was just like getting something really good without giving up anything on the defensive end. And I, I think a lot of what's been helping the Avs possession-wise is, is coming from the defensive end, not just from Girard, but um, the way Zadorov has played, especially in the last month, has been enormous. Um, what he's able to do playing against the tougher matchups with his possession numbers and the way he's generating shots and suppressing shots in the defensive zone um, is huge. Cause I mean, you know, back in, you know, back in the first 16 games, you know, that's when we were wondering if he was ever going to turn the corner and he was getting scratched three times in a row and everything like that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just, I think overall the the whole defense has been a, a ton better in the in the past month month and a half than it was back then yeah i definitely agree with that and it is crazy to to think back about the conversations we had about zadorov in the beginning yeah. <laughs> and so what is it 
can we put our finger on at all what turned the corner from him or was it just playing more and and being able to succeed which brings on more minutes more impact etc or is there anything in particular that kind of turned the corner for him i'll go first because i'm a really shit judge of defenders um i think that it was really just getting back to game speed after that injury I think it took him a lot longer to get back to normal game speed than I expected him to. Um, And when he finally did, you know, start to feel the game again, he started to then get back on the track he ended last season with before he went down. I think he is someone that needs the minutes. So it's just kind of like pulling teeth to get him to where kind of that plateau where he takes off. And then he obviously then deserves the minutes. But it's almost like you just... You have to give them to him because having Zadorov out there and not playing much just doesn't help anybody. Well, if you look at, I, I charted his minutes in his, you know, in relation to the when he was scratched uh, back when he was having his difficulties, and it would be like they would put him in for you know eighteen, nineteen minutes, and the next game would be sixteen, seventeen, then it'd be thirteen, fourteen, then it'd be a scratch. And it was like he he was he wasn't playing an assertive game. He wasn't doing what he needed to do to stick in the lineup, and his his minutes were going down each game. So it's just you know what whatever the the staff wanted to see from him as a whole, they weren't seeing. And finally, he started playing you know his assertive, heavy hitting, um, good with the puck type game, and it just. It just took off, and I mean, it just—you can't even compare what he looks like now compared to that. I got curious. When was when was the last time that the Avalanche gave up more than three goals in a game? And it was against the Lightning at home on December sixteenth. And they almost won that one. They did. <laughs> yeah. And then when's the last time before that? Let's. Last time before that was in Washington. That was a five-two loss. And then the time before that was in Tampa on December 7th of another 5-2 loss. Uh, there's a 7-3 win after that. Yes. So, it's been, yeah, it's the middle of December then is, is when the goals suddenly dried up for the Avalanche opponents. Gee, did anything but happen I'm... around that time? Um, I think a suspension of some kind. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> Um, but I'm thinking more along the lines of something that might directly impact stopping pucks from going in the net. Oh yeah, Varley went away. I wasn't going to word it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not mid-December, though. No. He had the flu. He had the flu. That was in November. Was it? I thought it was early yeah. December. No, it was no. it was late November. And then he came back, and they were bad in early December. That's what yeah. happened. So that's a significant difference, too. It's a lot easier to win games if you're not having to outscore your opponent by you know with at least four goals. So, and I would rate, also say someone else went down in late December. Would you? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about not giving up goals. 
I know Tyson what Barry? you're talking about. <laughs> a diminutive defenseman? I know, I know it's like, you know, pretty much reaching meme status at this point to say, oh, we don't need Barry, we're winning. And But if you look at just he does bring more offense both ways when he's on the ice. I think you at least have to think about it. One thing I've make been... him a two-way defender. <laughs> <laughs> How about a four-way defender? A, a two-way oh. offensive defenseman. <laughs> <laughs> Both ways offensive. I, you know, I, I think some of this goes back to the question we've had for eight years now, almost. Is you know who who is going to be Tyson Berry's partner, and that they. You know, they, they really wanted it to be Namath, and he may be the most equipped to deal with that out of everybody on the team. Um, but he's still not very good with Barry. And it's just, it's, it's to the point where you're like, is there someone that can play with Barry and deal with it? They keep trying to stick him with Gerard and Barbario, and those just don't make sense to me. I don't think he's played with Barbario a ton. I personally think they can't do him and Nemeth. Like, if you, they're like a 42% together. And if you look at the pairs that have spent a lot of time together in the league, they're like one of the worst. I just, I don't think you can do that. And I mean, they, they were fine with Gerard and Lindholm, which isn't a great pair either. So I would, I would rather try Gerard with Barry than have Barry go with Nemeth at this point. But, but I think if they want to try to make, make good pairs they they should try barry with maybe sidorov maybe barbario just try something else because if the default is just to put him back with nemeth then i don't think they're gonna find a lot of success with that yeah because i i mean the the four defensemen that aren't ej and zadorov have been pretty good over this streak obviously um, you know, Lindholm hasn't been great, obviously, but even he's had, you know, he's, he's had some decent games in there. Um, and you just, you know, I, I, that's where the whole, do we need Barry conversation comes from You're You look at sort of the, the defensive goals against numbers and shots against numbers. And you're like, you know, we're, we're doing fine with what we have. What, what is Barry going to do? that's going to be an improvement on that. And it's just, it's tough to come up with something. And I know the argument is you're adding in a 50 point defenseman and, you know, he's going to create more offense and then that's true, but it, it kind of has been like they filled his shoes by committee with him out. Right. Let's, let's um, actually go straight into that with, because one of the things that you, we talk about missing if you miss Barry is a lot of offensive firepower, but through this stretch, Colorado have had plenty of offense. They have had, absolutely no lack for scoring, whether that's from, um, you know, a million Nathan McKinnon points or not. There's There's been some depth scoring happening as well, and I think we need to take the time to highlight that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, even Nemeth is scoring, you know? Um, that that I we just... can rely on a whole lot less. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm just saying... Sustainable than that. No, but I'm saying, you know, it's like if you're looking at, you know, depth guys stepping up, well, I mean, Nemeth stepped up a little bit in Barry's absence, and, you know, he scored a couple goals, had a, you know, that that's great for him. And um, and I think Sidorov has taken some of the minutes, some of yeah. the raw minutes, 
because they do like to put Barry and EJ together in certain situations and they've actually had success together. So maybe that's, that's one that should remain when Barry comes back, but is he taking the minutes from the Zadorov and EJ have been playing well together. And then you would have Gerard and the, I think it's the seven points that he scored. And most of them are on the power play, but whose spot was he taking on the power play? Gerard yeah. has nine points, but I think he had seven of them in seven games. So yeah. that's correct. I, I could see where you would have that thought. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's like, During is, is Barry going to match that? If, if Barry comes back and he gets a donut for four games in a row, I mean, it, you know, the natives are going to get restless about that. Especially the natives are already know, restless. Right. right. You know, it's like if, if, if Barry's playing four and a half minutes on the power play and Sam's getting a minute and a half and then power play dries up, then. You know, that that's a pretty big indictment. Or the opposite happens. He comes back, he scores a goal right away, and then everyone's like, Yeah, it was pretty stupid to say we didn't need Barry, haha. I mean, sure, regardless of what happens either way, it's gonna be like either justifying one point or the other. But I think you even mentioned a couple days ago something about it's more over time what's really gonna justify it. Are they gonna keep their possession numbers, their goals against, their Corsi against down or not with Barry in the lineup. Yeah, I mean, you really have to look at, you know, sort of 10 games before you can really make any kind of judgment about sort of what what Barry is doing that wasn't being done before. Well, how long has um, he been out? Since the uh, first Arizona game. Yeah. He, he played like two minutes in that game or something. Three minutes. Yep. Okay. So but, since December 23rd. I think yep. you made a good point earlier about um, finding a partner for him. It seems like that's kind of been like this ever never ending quest. And it always seemed like just because their options were so terrible, but I think it might be fair to consider as this kind of a Duchesne thing where it was like searching forever for a winger for him. But was that just because the roster was so bad or was it because maybe he's a hard fit which He's I definitely a hard fit. I mean, it's you can't ask for a harder job in the NHL than being the partner to someone like Barry or Shattenkirk or you know Gustus Bear or something like that. Um, and it's just I, you know, I don't know enough about what would work in that situation. Obviously, the Avs haven't found it because they've been looking for years and they haven't been able to come up with anything. You know, it's like obviously, you know, sort of the Nate Gannons and Nick Holdens of the world weren't right, but. It, it was sort of even the style you could tell just wasn't going to work there. So what, you know, what style of defenseman can work with that type of partner? I think just going with the eye test, I think he does better with somebody that's mobile rather yeah. than more of like just a, what you would think a traditional defensive defenseman. But if you look at the numbers like him with Bigra or with Gerard, they, they're not fantastic. So, I mean, there's not a lot of evidence there, but I, I think that's in the right track. I think he needs somebody with him that moves the puck, too. It, it needs to be somebody who can move the puck and can move their feet, importantly, yeah. um, the, which is why he may not work super well with Zadorov, even though Zadorov is maybe a more kind of responsible sort of player. He, he doesn't have a tremendous amount of foot speed, so... If, if Barry decides to go YOLO, it's a little bit tougher for Nikita Zadorov to cover for that. Um, whereas someone like uh, Gerard or like even Eric Johnson could have a much easier time 
jumping back like that. And I would really, you know, as as well as those two have been together, I would really hate to break up the the ZJ pairing to give Tyson Berry a a D partner. You know, I wouldn't do that at all. Not a chance. I mean, that's a top pair. I yeah. mean, they're, they're, they are a top pair National Hockey League defensive guys. You know, I mean, you just can't break that up because they do, they do so much as far as everything in the game that just sort of accommodating Barry doesn't make any sense for that. No. I think everybody kind of wanted Chris Begra to be the guy to, to pair with Barry. And obviously that didn't work out. But I, I think that the the kind of defenseman that Bigra is, it, it would probably be a good place to start if you're looking for a style that would work with that. Someone who, you know, has has a little bit of um, skating ability and can move the puck, but also you know they 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 sort of think the game a little bit better than than Tyson Berry does, which isn't that difficult. But yeah, um, it, yeah, anticipate you know, where. Or maybe the the breakdowns right. are coming. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you, you need someone that can think quick and sort of anticipate when things are about to go wrong um, to be able to make up for some of the things that, that happen when Barry's on the ice. And, and you're describing Sam Gerrard. Yeah. And everybody thinks that, oh, he's, a, you know, he's tiny. You can't make up for Barry being tiny, too. And I, I'm just like, I, you know, I, I just don't think you need to put someone who's six foot ten with Barry just to make up for the fact that he's only five foot ten. Um, oh, you don't think we need to I, I think... pick up Yerky Okapaka for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I, I just think that, you know, you, you've tried the big dummies for a long time. You just can't keep doing that and hope you find the right big dummy i think you just find a different <laughs> kind of partner the right big dummy <laughs> i mean yeah when barry comes back and if they try him with gerard I, I think it's worth trying to see if you know gerard has a bit more experience now than when they were kind of playing together earlier yeah so i mean so maybe not... that sorry no, I was just gonna say maybe that pairing could could make a little progress. Because it's not that Gerard's a bad defender in his own zone. It's just that when you have those two together, it's like so all in on just like puck moving ability that they they just get they can get physically overpowered a little bit more easily than than I like. My main misgiving about that pair would be the fact that both of them are very good with the puck, and when one of them doesn't have the puck, you're kind of wasting his talents. But, you know, I, I don't know if that would end up being a problem, but that's just sort of the first thing I see when trying to shoot that down. Yeah. It's not, it's not the size thing. But the, the, the biggest producer of, of points with Tyson Berry gone has probably been, just when you're looking for a direct replacement, has probably just been Sam Gerrard. Um, with his seven-game assist, seven assist streak that he had running. Um, I don't know if it was a streak, but he had seven assists in seven games. But from the from the forward side, you have you don't have any farther to look than the second line. The the Carl Soderberg line with with uh, Como and Nieto has been really strong in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've really seen them sort of um, take the second line role and and, and go with it. Um, last night was the most pronounced I've ever I've I've really ever seen it. There's a three minute difference between Nieto and. 
trying to remember who is the high man who wasn't on that line. But there's a three-minute difference between the second line and the third line as far as time on ice. So it, there's really a set top six now and a bottom six. And Tell I mean, that bird he, summer's over. <laughs> I know. The nice bird. As I watch the snow fall. <laughs> it's a nice bird. But um but they've you know, they've been just pouring the points in on this streak. And I mean it, it, you think of them as sort of, you know, sort of a grunty, grindy type line, but I mean Nieto's assist to Soderberg in the San Jose game was about one of the prettiest passes you can make. Um so they're doing a lot more than just grinding people down with a four check. They they certainly had a good week, especially, and they made a big difference. But I still wonder if it wouldn't be better long term or overall if that was still more like the third line and there was an actual second line. I mean, at this point, you can't complain. They're winning... That well, what role are you attributing to the second line there? Well, more of an an offensive line, I would say. Like, and I'm also talking minutes. Like, I know they're getting some some kind of maybe you could even call it tertiary scoring from some of the the other forwards. But I th- I still think a big thing is going to be able to figure out which one of them or several of them can actually play more minutes. And now it's tough because Bednar relies so much on the Soderberg line and they're chipping in enough points. Like there's just real no argument to play anyone more than them, which well, makes I sense. Mean, I mean, they want to win, but I think long-term having those guys, having Nieto be a second line player, isn't what you're trying to do. Yeah. But o- over the streak, there have been plenty of times when either Wilson or Jost has been in the top six for minutes. So I, I think they've sort of looked at the, the, the Jost line when it was Wilson, Jost and Bork as sort of a second shutdown line, but that can also produce offense. And, you know, of course that leaves the fourth line as sort of everybody else and doesn't do anything well, but, um, yeah, it seems like they're getting somewhere with kind of like a third line, and then whatever yeah, I, reason, I, I it think, has to stop. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously you'd probably want Comfer instead of Bork on that line, but Bork's been really good over the streak, so, you, you know, and it, it, he's not he's not dragging them down offensively much. I mean, you know, it's, it's, right, it's a little depressing when he, when he gets a breakaway and you know he's not going <laughs> to score, but... Um, yeah, Bork's made you know. some. Uh, he's made some solid contributions in the last week. I'll agree to that for sure. He, yeah. he definitely did when it was that. Will I think the Wilson Jost line that he had, and they they had the several really strong games. But I do think Bork's kind of been maybe fading a little bit. I I still think he's a guy that you don't want to play all the time. He's really good that you can insert and get something out of him at least in just the, you know, with the PK or in the hustle or the puck forward, things like that. But, but yeah, you know he's not going to score. And at some point, you really can't have that be your third line of guys that really aren't ever going to score. And I'll counter that with, all right, he's, he's a, what you would want on the fourth line. I, I would counter that if you have him on the third line, then that puts somebody that 
kind of helps the fourth be more of a real line on the fourth. Like, you know, I, like I said, you know, Comfort would probably be better in that role. But if you have a fourth line that's sort of Kerfoot, Comfort, and, you know, probably Andrew Ghetto once he comes back. But, I, you know, I think Greer and, and Toninato have been fair in that role as well. I, I think if you have Comfort on, on the Kerfoot line, you're looking at more of a fourth line that can do stuff. Uh, rather than just be sort of thrown together and then they go out there and maybe something good happens. Did you, do you really want those guys having the lowest time on ice? It, see, that's the problem. It's like, it's not the construction of that line, but then you're not playing them. Well, I mean, I just by role, it's, it, I think that they would end up getting minutes when they needed to. I, I, I'm not, like, if, if they, they're generally pretty close. I mean, they're, they're generally within a couple minutes of each other. So I don't think it's, I mean, it's a matter of like two or three shifts. The, the fourth <clears> line has been, has been pretty consistently like under 10 minutes. Like Kerfoot might end up a game or so more because of the power play. But I mean, during the streak, the fourth line has definitely been like not used. I, I think they're trying to use a third line more. And when it was Joe Wilson and Bork, they were, they were getting some minutes. And then before Comfort got injured, when it was him, Wilson, and Andrew Ghetto, that one kind of got played more. But I think at the end of the day, the fourth really isn't getting played. I, you know, if, if the fourth can be opportunistic scoring, then I, I think I, I have to be good with that. Just because there, there's no one that you really want shutting down. I mean, you're not going to put, you know, the way it is now with Yakupov and, and Kerfoot and either Toninato or, or Greer, you're not really going to use that as a shutdown line. They, they tried and it really went bad. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Greer and Toninato not playing is not a big deal or Bork not playing. But I mean, if you're, if you're really saying that Comfort's not going to play more than 10 minutes, I think a lot of people would not be thrilled with that. See, I think the I way think they're doing you... the, the time right now is cool, actually, um, because it's giving the uh, what we started to call the frat line, um, you know, protected minutes. You know, not not so many of them. Lots of time to um, you know adjust to the league. While we can re- we can't rely on the second line to keep producing forever, and we all know that it's this line of um, Matt Nieto and Carl Soderberg and whoever replaces Blake Como after he gets traded. That line is not going to score like this forever. So. Right now, they're a good buffer to give the frat line time to develop into what could be that second line. That's that's the way I see it. I mean, if they do that, if if they put them together and keep playing them, and they get like the third line minutes, which I think have been decent, and they stay together, then you, yeah, definitely you can see the potential where when they kind of grow a little bit and grow together, they can play more. But I'm not seeing. I mean, that was like for what, like four minutes yesterday, like. I need to see a little bit more <laughs> commitment to that line and using it. Um, it. It's a great idea. I do. I I really like their energy and their chemistry, and they all have skill in different ways. But then, if you do that, then then you're basically saying Andrew Ghetto and Wilson and everyone else is not going to play. And I still don't think they're going to do that. So, what is the team going to do when those players come back? Because, I mean, Sven isn't going to be hurt forever. Where is he going to slot in here? Obviously, when when Barry's back, I think the the play is to pull Lindholm out of the roster. But the yeah. Sven Andergetto is the question. Yeah. 
I mean, he's going to replace... It may be too soon to really know, though. He's yeah, I think, well, I think that's right on. Um, <laughs> I, I think getting Andrew Ghetto back, you know, and, and then getting Wilson back from his flu, you know, and, and, and also having Comfer back full-time, you know, now you've got, you've really got a lot of options in the bottom six, and it might be kind of a blender for a while until they really find two things that can play two different roles. Because I, I think Bednar wants a second shutdown line, and then he wants an opportunistic scoring line. And I, I think that they can manage that and not have one of those lines just play seven or eight minutes. I just think it's just going to be a, a blender until until they feel comfortable or they're forced through the trade deadline to break up that Soderberg line, which I get, like, right now it's doing great. Like, why would you do that? But they're just not going to move forward from the bottom six blender until they aren't so reliant on that second line. Of course, that assumes that they're going to trade Blake Como. Which, yeah, I mean, that's another <laughs> question. <laughs> that's another 45 minutes. Right. Um, well, if you read the Rainbow Discord, it's well more than 45 fucking minutes. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I I, I do I, I think they pretty much have to use the blender. I, I mean, I really you know I, I know the frat line sounds good, but it I I just don't see that being long term what's best for the bottom six. Just because I, I really think you need a line in there that's good defensively enough to um you know take some secondary shutdown minutes away from the Soderberg line and and away from the top line, of course. And, you know, Jost and Wilson and, and Bork together were doing that. Maybe Jost, um, I don't know. I mean, it just, there's, there's a lot of options there. Um, but I, I just, I, I think if you can make one line that scores and one line that can play two-way, you know, you, you're going to have a really rocking 12-man lineup. I think it gets more like long term as in like next year in the future is that they have to figure out that some of these guys like Comfer and Jost and Kerfoot, like what can they do? Are, are they second line? Are they third line? And I know the answer just isn't going to like pop, pop in the sky one day, but it's like they need to kind of start trying those roles to get an answer because I think if you clutch too much to the Soderberg is is the second line, is the shutdown line with Nieto and Como and, you know, whoever. That's not really progressing kind of the rest of your roster. And maybe that's we may not even answer right now, but I don't think it answers anything. We may not know this until next season when we do see moves that are made with Blake Como going, possibly Matt Nieto going, and whatever decisions that may be made at the deadline at draft free agency question mark any possible free agent signees if there's any of those that come down afterwards i would i think it's really next season i would like them to have more information before they make these decisions before the checkbook comes out on july 1st and they sign somebody because you know they will and i think they need to have that information or at least about who you're dealing with yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and you know, I mean, it's next season is so fluid because 
you know, is someone going to drive a, a dump truck load full of talent up on Joe Sackick's lawn for Barry and just make him an offer he can't refuse? Um, I mean, there's that just there's so much that. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so much that could go on before next season. I'm just assuming it's oh, it's I mean, going to be wildly different no matter what. Oh, definitely. I'm just saying that I hope they have more information about what the pieces they do have can and can't do and an idea of what they need. Like, do they need to sign a top six wing? Do they, you know, what do they need? Yeah. And I think they need to have a better idea of that than just, well, we have some young guys because there's going to be even more next year. Like it doesn't end. You have to, you have rookies now. You're going to have more rookies next year. Like you can't have more questions. You need to start finding some answers. And it's, I mean, again, one thing this streak does is make that really tough because there's, they're just, they're scoring a lot and they're not giving up any goals. So you're just like, what do we need? Well, we seem to be doing well right now, so we don't need anything. Right. Exactly. Uh, and like I said, like I, I'm not expecting them to break up the Soderbergh line. I mean, right this second because of what, what they've done, but it's just, it is those tough things where it's the success versus the process. And right. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I do think, you know, they kind of, they bring different um, priorities and different, it, it, they're always kind of working against each other in a way, because you can't be all in on either. Yeah, I, I totally agree that we need to see more, um, more time just from the players with, within the system right now because I mean, we've been yelling about how the Avalanche need scoring wingers for months and years now um, but we're unless we find out whether we have that player now or those players now on the on the roster in the system in the organization we don't know how loudly to beat the drum for James Van Riemsdyk this summer um, yeah but like like you said, the streak has made it a little bit tough on evaluation because everything's just rolling correctly for the Colorado Avalanche. So that's where the question kind of turns to, yeah, winning is awesome, and winning a lot of games is awesome, but how good is the streak for the for the team? <laughs> do you, do you think it's hiding problems more than more than it should? I think the streak itself is good. I, I think it's something they can be proud of, especially if they don't make the playoffs or they don't, you know, they ha they haven't really climbed in the standings through this. I, it's certainly helped, but um, I think it's something that they can kind of hold on to and say that they've done because I'm assuming, you know, it's not going to continue and they are going to have some tough times after this. And I think it's something they can really point to and say, we did this and, and claim for themselves. But so I, I like it from that standpoint, I'll just say. I have a Another couple of concerns about the streak. And they primarily are the streaks with the Philadelphia Flyers who won, what, 10 last season and then cratered and then got uh, Nolan Patrick in the draft. I don't want to see them get to this high and say, well, that was the high point, and then it just ran itself off the cliff. I the other thing that. is... The other thing is also... Bernie is hot right now, and Varley's still going to be shelled for a little while. What about that freak injury? That freak occurrence that knocks Bernie out? 
And then we go to Andrew Hammond. What a downer. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) that's not the worst thing that could happen. It's not. You know what the worst thing that could happen would be. Don't even say it. We all know that, and we're not going to put that on the (laughs) internet. I think we all know what the worst thing would be. So yeah. that that certainly could still happen. Um, well, looking on, on at a positive aspect of that, <laughs> um, the Avalanche have managed the streak while having some fairly significant players not in the lineup. Like we've discussed, Barry and Varley are not there. And, and also, I mean, Andrew Ghetto is still in the top 10 scoring on the team. And Comfort was out for a while. So... And Jost. Um, like right when he started playing well, we lost Jost for a while. Yeah. So, it, it, if anything, it just shows there's there's good depth. So that's not something that they really need to go looking for. So we can eliminate that as a possibility. Um, and that's been great too. It really has been nice that when someone goes down, that you're not just like covering well, your eyes when yeah, exactly. when the person has to play. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> um, I, I I think that you know I think that's actually been good for for Sackick and and McFarland to to sort of look at like all right you know we we played a really good month of hockey and we had some very significant players that weren't a part of it. So, you know, we don't really need to go looking around the bargain bin for guys this summer. You know, we don't need to make, you know, a call a waiver claim. Trade. Um, you know, waiver claim might be fun actually, but you know, but, but we don't we don't need to make it. the Wilson. Yeah, that, we don't need to still... make the Wilson trade again. Um, you know, yeah, if you're if you're looking for what this team needs, they might need scoring, and then they might not. Is the best I can come up with right now. I don't know if they've completely learned that internal is the way to go. I hope so. Like, I don't think they're going to go out and trade for Brad Stewart or do something like that. I think they've finally got the clue there. But as far as still looking outside the organization to fill holes, I'm not sure they're there yet. I've been encouraged that Greer and Toninato seem to kind of be the first two they look at for call-ups. So that's been great. Um, I, I think they're getting there, so I'm going to give them credit for that. But I, I do think we're a long ways away from not kind of having that dread on July 1st of, okay, what what exactly are they going to bring in that they think they need to, to fill a hole going into next season? I think it's Im- important to, to note that even though, I mean, yes, Nathan McKinnon is scoring every shot from everywhere, and yes, Jonathan Bernier is playing outside of his mind right now, but... It's not like the Avalanche have bad underlyings in this stretch either. They've been, for the most part, outplaying their opponents. That's why they're starting to rack up a goal differentials, because they're playing well and getting some variation in their favor, or some variance in their favor at the same time. So... And I think a lot lot of other players have chipped in, too. Yeah. They don't have, you know, numbers that would really stand out, but I think everyone has helped, like, like we mentioned, some of the defensemen chipping in, some of the forwards have as well. So even though it does look like it's just McKinnon and like people don't even really look at Rantanen because he's playing with McKinnon. <laughs> but <laughs> And they should, because he's over a point per game now. Yeah. And, and like I wrote last week, he's 
or was it a week before? Like I wrote recently, like he's at his career shooting percentage. This is who Miko Rantanen is. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's definitely kind of getting lost in it. And I think also because he's on that line, but like yesterday the things that he did were had nothing to do with McKinnon. Yeah, that shot pass for EJ was fantastic. I mean, you know, the, the goal was YOLO, obviously, but, you know, the, the, you get goals like that because you're a good player and you're on the ice at that situation. Right. Like, um, Yeah, I've heard that argument, too. Like, you can say, oh, empty net goals are just kind of a gift or whatever, or fluke, but but it it is the player was on the ice in that situation. Yeah. He still had to make the shot. Yeah. Yeah, he still made a good play on that, too. Yeah. Went in with 0.1 seconds, you know? That was a timely goal. <laughs> are all goals timely? <laughs> they sure are. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the joke. I guess, um, you know, we kind of wonder, like, what what can we expect from McKinnon now moving forward? Like, we've had that conversation, like, you know, are we going to expect 90 points from him forever? And, and I think Rantanen kind of enters that conversation too. Like, are we expecting point per game from him moving forward now? Is he going to finish with point per game? Like, kind of what like are the expectations? Season? Yeah, for either of these guys. Like, yeah. You know, when you talk over the summer and you, you have these endless conversations about like someone is an X point forward, like, you know, they're not going to get that every year, but what's kind of like, what what you think of them, right? 70, 80, 90 point forward, you know, there, there's kind of a big range in there as to what kind of player that means they are. Well, Randon's fighting you know, out on assist to Nathan McKinnon, and it, some, some of this X-point player discussion is going to revolve around whether this is the kind of scoring that the NHL sees, or last year is the kind of scoring that the NHL sees more often. If it's more like this year, then you can look at McKinnon and say that's a point of game player and look at Rant and I think you could say it's a seventy, seventy five point per eighty two. But that's just me. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean I I think, you know, the what we've seen as far as changes in how the games are called have really affected you know what what a 70 point player is and what a 60 point player is and and what even a 90 or 100 point player is cuz uh, i mean there there are a ton of guys that are over a point per game in this league right now and yeah. that's just that hasn't been the case over the past several years no we we've, we've had this discussion and loudly on forums for the last couple of years like oh the avalanche don't have a point a game player and have never had a point a game player and all this time and we're just like do you know how many of those are in the league like yeah. three. <laughs> But this year it's not three anymore, so. But still, I think that's still a pretty, pretty high bar if somebody can be a point per game player, and maybe some of this will normalize out too by the end of the year. But, but yeah, I mean, I agree with the the changes they made that that there's going to be more points out there for these guys. But you know, if Ranton I mean, makes that mark of being a point per game player, that's still quite something for him. Yeah, I mean, regardless right. I mean, of the officiating, a point a game for 82 games is elite consistency. Yeah, especially for I a 30-year player. Second. Yeah. And, I mean, McKinnon, he's he, 23 points, and he's got a point per game, even if he goes donuts the rest of the year. Um, I mean, and it's insane to think that he's also four points away from his career high. 
and here we are in game 45. <laughs> um, you know, that's, you know, I, he, he has to have found another gear. And I know we've seen, you know, Mr. <clears throat> 50 goals once in a lifetime kind of thing uh, with, with a, a several flash in the pan players. But I, I just, I, I think this is kind of who McKinnon is and not 19 points in nine games, obviously, but you know, I, I think sort of the, the pace that he's going on is about what he is. Yeah, he's definitely. shooting a little bit high. <laughs> I mean, you're you're looking at a little bit of shooting percentage that might normalize a bit. Um, but you know, I, I I really see him as an 80 90 point player going forward. You I like can how definitely carefully dodge around the L word in this conversation. By the way. <laughs> You could definitely tell that that he's he's evolved his game that that he's doing things that, that he hasn't been doing in the previous years. I, I mean, I I think it's more that the coaching staff has been like, all right, let's make a first line that can really kill people, and they did that. <laughs> you know, but I think you both have a point here too, though. Like the this this toe drag into snapshot between the defender's legs, this this Phil Kessel shot that McKinnon has developed is new. Yeah. Um. But at any rate, I this occurred to me after the game yesterday. Where I was talking to, I think it was uh, Jordan Epstein on on Twitter that was in the conversation with me and Mac and Jay, um, which was like. We were looking at the primary point share for forwards but across, you know, various teams and Nathan McKinnon's has points on a lot of Avalanche goals, um, like on the Connor McDavid level. Um and something occurred to me. And I said, if you'd gone back to September and told me that Nathan McKinnon would have fifty primary points, I would have said, Okay. And then you'd said, In January. Like, we have to step back and look at where we are here. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, you have to give a lot of credit to Landy and, and Miko, of course, and to the coaching staff for putting that together. But when it comes down to it, he has to execute. And that's something we've worried about for years, whether he's you know got what it takes to execute when you're put in a situation to be successful like that. And you know, he's he's allayed my fears so far. I mean, I I just I, I don't see this as, as flash in the pan. I mean, this this really seems like who he is. Yeah, it just seems like everything finally came together this year and maybe it was kind of a coincidence that that he needed this much experience or or something finally clicked or you know, had has someone like Rantanen with him, who I think helps him too. Um yeah, it just seemed like there was always these questions about could he use his speed more than just in a go 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 kind of way. Like, um, he seems to be thinking more, and just even one of the interviews this week when he was describing about um, just how he how he knows who he's on the ice against, and and if they're the defenseman is, he said slow footed or fast footed and just things like that. Like it's all coming together that he's thinking the game in this way and it's, it has slowed down for him. 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, he's been outstanding at on home ice specifically, and that's a big reason that Colorado have been such money on home ice. Um, but the road is coming. Um, coming up this week, Colorado swing through Eastern Canada for a back-to-back against the Toronto Maple Leafs on Monday, which is 5 o'clock Mountain, and the Montreal Canadiens on Tuesday, which is at 5.30 Mountain, because Montreal can't do anything anything in a normal way that I like. It has to be a 30 start because reasons. Uh, they have the weekend <laughs> off. Um, the last game of this week comes on Thursday in St. Louis against the Blues, which is a 6 o'clock Mountain, although McKinnon doesn't have the weekend off because he has an All-Star game to get to. Um, following that, Colorado go to Vancouver, then they break into February with games in Edmonton and in Winnipeg, and then they play at Denver against the San Jose Sharks, which is basically how this rolls into the whole trip, because it's just one game. And then they're back in St. Louis, and they're over to the East Coast again versus Carolina, and then versus LOL Buffalo. So, <laughs> there's, there's a ton of road games coming up, and it's just like, there's, there's a, obviously the ability for, for Bednar to get whatever matchups he wants for Nathan McKinnon at home. What do you think we're going to see on this road trip? I I don't think matchups are as big a deal as everyone's making them out to be because I don't think there is a matchup that is good against McKinnon, Landeskog, and Rantanen. You know, I, I think we've seen that you can put a checking line against them and, and try to get them away from your first line. And that doesn't work so great. Um, we've seen them go up against any first line in the league and do okay. Um, so I, I think they're going to be okay. I, I, the matchups I worry about are, are more sort of the, you know, our, our, our discussion with what's going on in the bottom six and how that's going to work. Because I, I think the problems that we've seen, even during this streak, um, the few problems that there are, are, are sort of with how the the bottom six deals with what they're given on any given night. I think what I'm, I think what I'm concerned about, and I mentioned this uh, before we went, went on is as far as the Canadian teams are concerned, I'm, I'm not really, uh, I won't really be broken up if the abs drop one or more of those games. My concern is with how they, how they will fare against the division opponents on the road. Just looking at the, uh, just looking at the records right now, uh, the Jets are 16-3 and 1 at home. That's, that's going to be a tough building to go into. It's the last game of the trip, too. And those, that game right there, I think, is going to be out, just huge for both teams. The Blues right now are 15-10-0 at Scottrade. Those are the games that I would say, and I would say those are must-win if the Avs are going to move up in the standings. They have to win these games. I'm not worried about the, the Canadian teams at all. Toronto's been struggling at home of late. Edmonton hasn't been doing too well. I mean, they're they have Are you the sure? same. They're, they're doing roughly <laughs> around the same points right now with the Avs. But in terms of proje- ex- projections, like expectations, they're not where they should be. I think for me, looking at the road as a challenge is kind of interesting because historically they haven't been that poor on the road. They've had more trouble being successful at home so this is kind of new for them the road usually seems to kind of like bond teams together and they get kind of like this going into hostile environment us against the world kind of thing and so the road's usually good for 
teams, especially young teams coming together. So it is kind of funny in a way to me that it sounds so daunting for them to go on the road. But the thing is, is that the scoring and McKinnon's scoring and their scoring rate at home, that their special teams have been better at home, which to me, that makes no sense. Special teams should be the same, really. But, you know, there is going to be that, for whatever reason, they don't score as much at home. And I also agree that matchups matter to a point, but it, it shouldn't explain such a, and I don't know what the exact differences between how much they score at home or on the road, but I think it's over a, a goal per game, I believe. So there is a significant difference there. Um, and I kind of wonder what that's about. So that's kind of my, my concern is that they're going to have to be ready to not score as much on the road for whatever reason. So that's where my concern lies. But I think, I think they generally are a team that does decently on the road. And it, it helps that during the streak, they at least had one road game and they won that in Dallas, obviously. So it's not so much like, Oh my God, can we, can we continue this on the road? Wow. Really? They can have confidence in how they, how they played in that game. Out of all the bullshit stats on NHL.com, there's not a home road report. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one day I actually had the toughest time just even finding the home road splits because I was having a conversation about Vegas and their home road split, and I couldn't even find it. So they love to hide those things. There's you, I, goals by strength, goals against by strength, goals by period. You can find, like, if you're looking at PK and whatnot, you, you look under the those those tabs. They have the home road splits on those. They do. They have it on the power play. They must have it on the penalty kill, too. So, where is it for in general? NHL, you are killing me. <laughs> it's like they don't want the fans to like statistics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know am. their PK is hard on the road for some reason, and I can't... I, I, I mean, I don't know why, there's no good reason for that. It might just be weighed down by some earlier in the season stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they they started out on the road and they went five for ten, so there's some bad right there. <clears throat> um, but anyway, but they've, it's, they've it's, got a much better percentage at home than the road, so it's how much is, is goals or not may take more research than we have time to do live during a recording. Okay, but uh, I, I believe it's like three something at home. They score per game, and it's two something on the road. Now, if I'm completely wrong, then my they're bad. at three twenty three overall. So if it's three something, I mean, oh, then it's more. Then it's going to be even more than yeah. Yeah, because they, they might. Uh, I don't think they score more than the Islanders do at home. Who knows? But. <clears throat> I, it's not something I'm really worried about because I, I really, you know, I, I go back to my narrative that they're not the same team they were a month ago. And I, I think that's part of it too. Like, I think you have to look at the statistics for the full season because that's how you make comparisons. But as, but if you're just looking at how the Avs are doing, like a month by month split, would kind of give you an idea of where where they're progressing. Yeah, it's like we were saying earlier, it's like two different teams between, like, before Sweden and after Sweden. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a constantly evolving thing. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure at some point in February or March, we're going to be looking back at these conversations and, and wondering sort of what we were thinking during them. Um, but that's, you know, that just sort of is what it is. I mean, the teams change throughout the season. And it's who you are at the end that matters. Um, but I, I just, I think right now for this road trip, um, you know, I, th- I think they're set up pretty nice for it. I think you're probably right. Um, with with the three games this week at Toronto, at Montreal, back to back, and then at St. Louis, do you think we're gonna see a 12 game winning streak? Yes. And the Avalanche going beyond godlike. <laughs> if they can win that game in St. Louis, then don't make plans in April. Yeah, the Blues just I, I, dropped a, a 5-2 against the Coyotes last night. Yeah, they are not yeah. playing well right yeah, now. They're kind of on the struggle bus right now. Um, let me pull the standings back up for like the fourth time. I should just leave these things up. Ah! Um, that was a reaction to some feedback that I cut out in post, by the way. Um, the Blues Oh, that was actually the door to my stove. It sounded like feedback. In their last 10, they were 5-4-1. <laughs> Five four and one, by the way, is comparable to the Chicago Blackhawks in their last ten, San Jose in their last ten. Uh, God, I hate this. Florida Panthers. There's so, a hell of a team. Yeah, like it's, <laughs> it, it, that's the, the the kind of recent results that, that compares to. And whatever genius put separate scroll bars on each section of the standings page on NHL.com, please never design anything ever again. Yeah, their website's just out of sight. Um, I wish. I don't know. I, I <clears throat> but no, I have to look I, at I, it. I really like this road trip just because of the the fact that we're playing three really different teams. I, I think Toronto has been struggling um, for various reasons. A lot of people are starting to bag on Babs. Um but they're definitely a, a very talented team and a quick team and a team that, that wouldn't be opposed to running wide open. And I think that's going to be a fun game. It was when they came to Pepsi Center, of course. That was one of the best games uh, of the year when they were here. Yeah, time. exactly. So I, I think that's going to be a, a fun one. I, I think, you know, the Habs are off. They're awful, obviously. Um, but... Just given, even though it's it's twenty plus years since the franchise moved, um, there's still some French Canadian players, especially a, a young one that just joined the team that's going to get his first chance to play in Montreal for the Avalanche, and so that's going to be fun. And, and you know, that's one you'd like to pencil in as a win. You don't want to take any team lightly, but you know, that's that's a team the Avalanche should beat, and. You know, I, I know the Blues have been struggling, but you know, there's there's the big test. You know, that's the game they really have to get up for after spending a, a couple days in the East. And you know, I, I I think that could be where the streak ends, or you know, it, it could start another one if if they lose one of the other games. But um, yeah, I I, I, just, I think we're going to learn a lot about this team in the next three games. I'll say two wins. It'd be nice for them to win in Montreal and 
it would be definitely glorious fun to win in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> rolls there, and especially how they were like on the edge with with all their issues. Yeah, I'm. I'm... <laughs> the, the other day, Steve Dangle posted a screenshot of his Fitbit when he recorded one of his most recent LFR, like his post game videos, and his heart rate was in the 140 area for most of it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to really have a, a good showing, even if, you know, maybe they don't win against Toronto, but I, I'd like to have them show well there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so the sort of the, some of the narratives about last year can go away and, and you know, a lot of the, the mainstream hockey media can get a chance to look at what the Avalanche play like these days. Yeah, if you see any odd stories about Avalanche players or Avalanche trade pieces that haven't been written lately, just remember it's because they're in Toronto. Yeah. And, you know, another narrative that's been going around is sort of, you know, this is a collection of unknowns or, you know, guys aren't talented or whatever. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to get I'd like to have them sort of take a look at what Nikita Zadorov looks like right now. Figure out who Kerfoot is. Figure out who Gerard is. Um, you know, just sort of get a look at some of these younger guys that they don't know anything about and sort of lump in as sort of bit players. So yeah, I think it's a good time for them to kind of go to the take their show to the to the big markets, I guess you could say. And and you mentioned earlier, I I'm really excited for Jerome to play in Montreal. I think that that'll be a big big moment for him. For Jerome, yeah. Um, I will say this: if if Nathan McKinnon scores even one goal on Monday against Toronto, the the McKinnon for Hart train is taken off. Yeah. Does that goal come if uh, Blake Como has a breakaway and McKinnon does his trailer again? <laughs> I just, I just threw it in my mouth a little bit. Ooh. I guess this kind of maybe goes into a little question that I had is, does that do the Avs need to make the playoffs for McKinnon to win the heart? And I get the point of, like, if you're the best player on a team that can't even make the playoffs, then, like, how good are you? But... I mean, let, let's say that he wins the scoring race or something like that. Like, he's not going to win. If he has less points than Kucherov, he's not getting it, like, regardless. But does the playoffs fair. have to be part of it? I think so. I, I think, think he'll so. Get, he'll yeah. get votes if the Avalanche don't make the playoffs, but they won't be first place votes. I mean, you're, you're you know, this is the most valuable player of the league. If you're not bringing your team to the playoffs, then how valuable are you really? And I'm I'm not saying that to disparage Mac, but that's just sort of how the the award is looked at. Right. But even if say he he finishes with either the most points or or something, or at least in the neighborhood of that, like because you the Kucherov argument is that he's splitting with Stamkos and goalie that I'm not going to try to pronounce right now. And, um, <laughs> I know his name, but I'm not doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like, how valuable are you if you're the best player on with a lot of other really good players? Not to take anything away from him either, because what he's done is incredible, but I do kind of uh, wonder if it's just tied too much to playoffs, because I do think team performance is an important factor, but I don't know. I I think it's a little too line in the sand for me. 
I mean, if ever there was a case, it would be the Avalanche going from 48 points to, you know, wherever they end up. Like, let's say 98 points, and they don't make the playoffs. Right. That would be a trip. Right. If ever there was a case for it, yeah. Um, But still, I mean, it's just too easy for the same old guys to get the votes rather than the new guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I know that. I'm just saying more philosophy more of a philosophical question than like, will they actually vote for him? Cause yeah, you, you know that they need to basically be like beat over the head with like, well, here's 10 reasons why you have to vote for him <laughs> for them to do it. Yeah. Um, so Vlad, have you run down your predictions for the week yet? I'm going to go uh full sweep. Full They're going to win them all. <laughs> We're going to go 12. Vlad in a row. gets credit if they do it. He does. Yeah. I, I, I think, called that last week, and it happened, so... Yeah, and Rudo <laughs> called it the week before, and it happened. I think that the Montreal game is an absolute trap. I am actually very scared of that game. Um, it's a back-to-back. It's an easy team to sleep on. Um, I, I really am concerned about Montreal being a trap game. <laughs> Does well, Andrew Hammond start that game? That's part of yeah, the reason that's, it could that's be a trap. Otherwise, I you're on the back-to-back of Bernier, so... It, one way unless, or another, you need to outscore that team. Unless Bernier says that he's you no, know, unless Perkila says that he absolutely needs rest, I, I think there's no way Bernier doesn't play both. If the streak is intact, he can't, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you could just say, "Well, we'll just try Hammond here." What the hell? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you've got ten in a row, you don't just put your backup in for kicks. You know. <laughs> I think even if they lose to Toronto, unless Bernier, unless it's physically related where they say that this guy needs a break. If it's just about decision, I think there's no way that Hammond plays, even if they lose to Toronto. I know. Bernie's a Frenchie anyway. I mean, he's got to want to play in Montreal. <laughs> just because of the played, I think it's even, it's more about just the streak. It's that um, he needs that he's going to be true. Number one and number one's, play more than you know maybe logic would dictate and Bernier also played the back-to-back when Varley was sick I think it was Minnesota and Calgary and he played those back-to-back so I'm gonna go with I'll be shocked if Hammond plays on Tuesday other than if Bernier just physically it suggested that he can't play that game I think they beat Toronto I think Toronto is really riding the struggle bus hard right now I, I'm like I said, I'm very concerned about the trap potential in Montreal. I think if they beat Montreal, they probably fall in St. Louis. But if they lose to Montreal, they come back with a statement game against St. Louis and win that one. So two wins for me too. I'm just gonna call two. I think they'll lose to the Blues. I'll I'll be contrary and I'll say they they finally snap their streak because winning ten in a row in Toronto is like asking for a complete meltdown of the hockey world twitter yeah and universe so you know we can't quite have that yet so and say they'll lose in toronto and then they'll uh win we'll the even have the mccarr narrative going there too it's gonna be awesome <laughs> oh boy oh boy <laughs> well if, if the mccarr narrative works its way back into the hockey conversation for some reason you'll you'll know you know you'll be able to find out here i gotta get out of here um you can always catch the show on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash burgundyradio and at mixcloud.com slash burgundyradio. We post it every week on burgundyrainbow.com where you can yell at us about whatever you want in the comments. You can 
join the Discord. You can check out some sweet and goofy merch. Um, and among other things, uh, keep right up in the dirty areas and we will see you all Yeah, 19 points in nine games. Uh, is that good? <laughs> <laughs> it was good in 1983. <laughs> that was like, good in the queue. This is the NHL.